Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. Good to see everybody. If you have your Bibles uh, or your phone or tablet or whatever, you can find Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, we've been trucking through here. And uh, uh, last week we covered chapter 8 and we uh, looked at, uh, kind of talked about how, uh, what happens when our, uh, our strongest desires overtake our deepest desires, specifically when it comes to um, some of the idols that we've set up in our heart and the way that we look towards uh, systems of authority and government and things like that. And um, we're just reminded over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes uh, how, how in the place of where there's supposed to be righteousness and goodness, a lot of times there's, there's uh, wickedness and there's injustice and there's oppression where there's supposed to be righteousness and goodness. And, and, um, and so uh, we saw last week how, how that kind of vision of life uh, changes whenever we, we look at Jesus and, and the way that Paul said in 1 Corinthians, uh, Jesus given to us as, as the wisdom of God uh, given to us. And so uh, uh, as we get into the chapter today, we're going to go through all of chapter 9. Uh, but before we do, let me, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll get into the message for the day. Uh, Jesus, thank you uh, for your goodness. Uh, thank you that we're here today, um, that, that um, you've given us your word and so as we stand, and we, I stand here, and we sit to hear your word, Holy Spirit, be with us, uh, guide us, uh, teach us, so that we walk out of here in more love and faith in, in God our Father than we had when we came in. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen, so I want to start today, I've, I've, done, I've done this before, it's been a while though, so I want to do a little survey. Uh, how many people in the room would say they're an optimist? Any optimist? I am. I'm, I'm a hopeless optimist. Like, hopeless. Now, how many of you call yourself a pessimist? Or let me rephrase the question. How many of you call yourself a realist? Because <laughs> all pessimists call themselves realists. It's true. It's true. You, you call yourself a realist because you say, well, no, I just like to talk about what's really going to happen, right? How many said that? Pessimist? I mean, realists in the room. How many? Yeah, we all say that, but, but we don't know what's going to happen, right? We don't know how things are going to end up. We have no idea, like we can't predict the future. There may be da- you know, data points that we can use to kind of think the way things are going to go, but we don't really know. Um, and, and so what, what happens is, we, you know, we, we kind of have this, this, these kind of mental maps, these frames of mind um, that, that we used, and we call ourselves optimists or realists or whatever, uh, but really what it is, it's about perspective. And the reason why we call ourselves these things is because humans, we are good at observation, but we're bad at perspective, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like we're really good at observing the immediate things of what's going on in life, but we're not always good at filtering that through perspective, right? Perspective is just like the way that we see things. It's, it's, it's the way that we observe life and, and we filter the way we think they're going to go or the way we think they should go or, or the way that, you know, we kind of look at the trajectory. And our perspective, the way, that we, the way that we think through, okay, this is what's happening, so now this is what I want to happen next or I think is going to happen next, our perspective is, is, you know, based on and built by the, the attitudes that we've developed, which are just patterns of thoughts that we've allowed to take root in our brain. Over, they've been formed over a long period of chi- time, and it forms our perspective. Um, 
Some, uh, some funny examples this week as I was thinking through this that I took just in our household, okay? So, so in our house, we have a, a three-month-old, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and two 30-year-olds, and a dog. Uh, in our house, um, just this past week, we, we popped down to the, the beach for a few days, and, and so there was the ocean, and there was a pool where we, where we were staying. And Abigail, our two-year-old, uh, she just realized she wasn't afraid of water, so then she thought she could swim. Okay, like her perspective was, I am not afraid of water, therefore I can do what I want in the water, right? And so which meant that she would just run and jump in the water uh, and, and I'd have to get her out, right? Uh, our five-year-old, her perspective is a little different. Uh, she, wa- she was um, afraid of the water, so therefore she could not swim, but in reality she actually could swim if, if she tried it, you know? But perspective for her has changed a little bit more. It's a little bit more nuanced, uh, especially as a five-year-old. She's trying to develop, you know, the way that, the way that she's processing the world and interacting with other people. It's, it's funny, pick, when I was picking her up from, like, preschool or from, like, hanging out with some friends, uh, I would see her playing, like, on the playground, having a good time, and, and like, She's leaving, all of her friends are, you know, bye, you know, see you tomorrow. You know, they hug, she's having a great time. She gets in the van, and I'm like, hey, how's today? And she's like, it was a horrible day. (laughs) I'm like, oh, like, you know, tell me about that. And she's like, I don't have any friends, no one plays with me, you know, and it was like, you know, and so, so one thing we've been trying to do is, is I've, we've noticed with her especially, she's really good at observing the world around her. She's terrible at perspective, you know. So I just started asking her, okay, on a scale from one to ten, one being the best, ten being the worst. What's the worst thing that could absolutely happen to you at school today? And she thought about it. And she said, if everyone in the whole school stood in a circle and punched me in the face at the same time. I was like, yep, that's it. Like, you nailed it. That is the absolute worst thing that could happen to any of us. Great job. And then, you know, so, okay, well, like, what's something that, like, on that scale, you know, is maybe like a seven like, not quite as bad as that, but still bad, you know, and, and help her think. So now when she gets in the van, it's not, this was the worst day ever. Say, so, okay, what well, is it as bad as everyone standing in a circle and punching you in the face at the same time? She's like, well, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, okay, great. Like, let's learn, let's learn perspective here, right? And it's funny to laugh about it, that, but, like, for me, too, I do it, right? Because my perspective, a lot of times, I project on others because I think people are going to react to a situation the way I would react to it, you know? So what I do, I go into conversations and I kind of hedge my bets a little bit and I kind of frame the conversation to, to prepare the, you know, per, like an example is, you know, one of our tires has a little leak in it. And for me, when I think like, like the idea of going to a tire shop and sitting and waiting is just like the worst. Like basically waiting for anything, it's more of a patience thing for me than it is anything else. But like when I go to tell Anna, like, hey, our, our tire has a leak in it, and then there's the whole thing about Subarus and the all-wheel drive, and if like one tire doesn't have the same amount of tread on the, anybody else, Asheville experienced this, this Subaru thing? So, so like for me to tell Anna, like I'm thinking, in my mind, I'm panicking because I'm, I'm adding up numbers, I'm thinking about time, you know, we, we've got one car for how long, you know, I'm doing all that, and, and so my perspective is Anna is going to freak out as bad as I'm going to freak out. Right? So I go into it with like, hey, Anna, I have horrible news. All right? Like, prepare yourself. Here's a cup of hot tea. Let's sit down for this. Let's put the kids to bed and get out a piece of paper and a calculator. And, you know, so, we sit, so I think it's going to be that bad. And I tell her, and she's like, oh, okay, just do it, whatever. Right? Because her perspective is like, it's fine. Right? So, so the thing is, we're good at observing stuff, but we're typically really bad at perspective. And, and what we're looking at today, today's passage Chapter 9, it's broken up into three sections, 
And it's where the preacher, we've, we've learned, like if you've been following along at all or if you've ever read Ecclesiastes or, or if you're just jumping in with us today, we're going to read through these verses and you're going to notice that the preacher's really good at observation, right? Like, like everything he said so far has been true in the book, but the perspective is off, right? He, he's given himself into a perspective of cynicism. It's coming from a perspective of doubt. It's coming from a perspective of this is all we get and so this is what we have. And so what I want to do for us today is see if, if we can kind of see the way that the perspective of the author of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the preacher, see if we can kind of see his perspective, understand his observations, but then see if there's a little, little better perspective for us in hindsight, right? Because we've got to remember that the preacher was writing this for a purpose, right? If you're reading Ecclesiastes and you're like, why is this here? It's here exactly for this reason, to make us think to make us process, to make us look honestly at the world around us and see how we fit into it, all right, and see where our faith fits into it and see where, where how, do we, how do we get up as people of God and sing the song we just sang but then live the life in the world that we know as we know it and we observe it. Like what perspective can we have? And I hope to offer us a little better perspective. Okay, so let, let, let's look at these uh, first 10 verses here. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll kind of look at the observations, and then, and then we'll talk about perspective. So, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. All right, so here's what he, he's observing, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. But here's the deal, whether it's love or hate that they're going to get for it, we don't know. Like both are before him. Verse 2, it's, in the same for, it's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil, right? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. It's because the same event happens to everybody. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Welcome to church. For the living, here's, here's what we have. The living, they know that they're going to die. So here's what you have to look forward to, right? You know you're going to die, but the dead, they don't know anything at all, and they have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Because God's already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Don't let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion. That's all you get. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, because you don't get any work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave to which you are going. When our perspective is off, we misplace our hope. When our perspective is off, we miss place our hope, right? Like just at verse 1 alone, like, hey, I, here's what I'm thinking about, uh, the righteous the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. That sounds like a very churchy thing to say, right? Like, like the righteous people, what they do, God is observing it and he, and he has it in his hand and, and, he's, and he's taking care of it. 
But then, you know what, at the end of the day, love or hate, what you get in reward for it, like you don't know, like we don't know what it's going to be, both are before him. Right, like, like this is the perspective of when we misplace our hope. And, and I don't necessarily mean misplace as in put it somewhere else. I mean we just lose it. Like you've set it down at some point and you can't find it. Like I think that happens to us a lot. Like, like at some point, the hope that we have for life, the, 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 the perspective of, of the trajectory of goodness that we have because of what Jesus has done for us and what he offers us, at some point we set it down because of some reason Right? And, and, and we've misplaced it. It's like Cindy Lou who's singing for Christmas. Like, man, where are you? Like, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Like, if we're honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, you take a minute to just kind of think of the way that, that you go about your life and your motivations in life, do you think that God is for you or that he's against you? Like, if you, if you took kind of inventory of, of the, that perspective, the way the trajectory of you think things are going to happen for you in life and the way things are going to go, would you say that God is for you or against you? Because the preacher here doesn't offer us any help in that regard, right? He just said, hey, here, here's the reality is that uh, you live and you die and that's it. Right? The, the trajectory, the, pre, the, the perspective of life is totally lost on him at this point. But see, the way, that, the way that we view God, right? Like if you just take that verse one of chapter nine and then filter the rest through it, and then you say, how can I change my perspective? The way that we view God and the way that he looks at us, I mean, it could be affected by a lot of stuff, the family we grew up in, you know, theological systems and traditions that we've been taught by. You know, it's affected by the way that we respond to, you know, trauma or, or really tough, significant situations or experiences in life. Uh, some of us do just naturally. Maybe you're that optimist and you think, man, if I, like, just ask that question, do I think God is for me or he's against me? Like, I'd say he's for me. Like, I think God is, is a, you know, or, or at least maybe you want to believe that. And you can give some kind of like mental assent to it, but it's hard to like practice it because you find yourself stressed out whenever, whenever you can't find the perspective or whenever things don't go your way, right? Whenever you don't get what you want, it's hard to believe that God's good. And so you start freaking out and you start taking things out on other people. You find yourself, we talked about last week, right, with idols. Like what is, what's that thing that kind of leads you to like uncontrollable emotion, Right? Like, like maybe your finances are put into question or brought up or, or it gets tight and you find yourself just getting angry or anxious or, or so stressed out you can't function. Or maybe, you know, whatever, you know, maybe, you know, your last week we talked specifically about like your political candidate isn't getting the votes they want or they don't win. And so you find yourself in just complete despair at that point. You know, your career, you don't get that promotion that you wanted. And so all of a sudden you find yourself just angry and you're bitter and you're lashing out at other people or you're thinking, man, maybe I'm just going to quit and find a whole new job and all the years you've put in are just going to waste. And I just wonder the perspective, if you're looking at, not, not that those things aren't important, but if you look at those things like the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God, but whether you're going to get good or bad for it, love or hate in return, like, I don't, I don't know. But if we really believe that God is who God is, that he's loving that he's gracious, that he cares for you, that as you put your cares and concerns on him, he's gonna take care of you, that his yoke, the yoke of Jesus is light and his burden is easy. Like if you believe those things and you believe that God is God and we are not, 
right, then, then, then why do we react the way we do? Why, why can't we change our perspective? What's wrong with it? Where did we place and set down the hope of who God is and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us, right? Because at the end of the day, what, what, what he kind of offers us here is the reality that God is God and you are not. And like, I am not God, right? And that should be really freeing in theory, right? Like the, the reality that God is God and we are not, for some of us, it's become like a really convenient theological quip so we don't have to deal with like hard things that were going on internally or in life experience, right? Like, how, like have you ever caught yourself saying like, well, God's in control, so I'm not gonna deal with it, but you really need to deal with it? Like you gotta have that tough conversation? Like you gotta shoot straight with somebody instead of letting them push you around? Like yes, God is in control, but that doesn't change the reality that, that we still live and have to go through this earth, right? Because when you just kind of like think about that hope, the, the, the perspective that God is God and that he is good and loving. And like we sang in the song and it says in the 23rd Psalm that surely his goodness is going to follow me all the days of my life. I'm not talking about like prosperity gospel preaching here. I'm just talking about the reality of, of a trust exercise. That if God is who he is, and he offers us what he promises, then how does that change the perspective of the way we view the life around us and the experiences we're going through, right? Because, because there's a, I remember growing up, my uncle, you know, is like, hey, uncle, you know, you guys don't know, uncle Tony, how you doing? He's like, yeah, just, you know, how's work going? I just gonna pay taxes and die. <laughs> I was like, even at like seven, I was like, bummer, dude. Like, that's brutal. Like, that's tough. But that was kind of like the, you know, like, yeah, hey, we just work and work and pay bills, and that's, then we die one day, and that was it. And like, that's kind of what we feel like when we read the, this, right? Like, when we're going through Ecclesiastes, maybe you find yourself in that. Like, where, like, where did you put, when did you put that hope down? That hope that God is making all things new, that God is calling you into his story of redemption. Like God is calling you into restoring the things in your life that have been taken away by sin and death, right? I mean, this chapter gives us observation, but it doesn't help us with perspective. But if we look at other places, it does. And that's where Ecclesiastes fits into the Bible is that, that it, it offers us a chance to be honest about the world we live in, but then to renew our faith and our trust in God. I love Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms because it starts out with Asaph. He's like the worship leader of Israel. He was established by King David to be in the temple so that when people came to give sacrifices, he would lead the choir to lead people into this kind of heavenly vision of entering the presence of God. But he starts out the psalm and he says, hey, you know, he's, he's like, God is good to Israel you know, that's like his Sunday school answer. But then he says, but you know, honestly for me, I'm, he says, I almost slipped. He's like, I look around at the wealthy, at the wicked, at the people who are constantly sinning and have no, like, there's no sign of, of them pursuing a relationship with God in their life. And it just seems like everything is going really well for them. They're putting money first. They're putting fame first, popularity first. And it seems like they're winning. That's like the first half of Psalm 73. And he says, but when I tried to, dis to discern, when I tried to process and change the perspective and get a Godward perspective, pick back up the hope that I had lost, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God and I beheld his presence and his goodness. 
right? Like, like God, we pick back up our hope whenever we come back to God and we look at him and we, and we, we change our perspective instead of placing the, like making the object of our faith the things that are happening to us or the things around us, right? God becomes the object of our faith so that our hope doesn't waver, right? Because here's what he says, the end of Psalm uh, 73, he says, when my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in heart, meaning that I was just, I was, I was literally heart sick because of the way that I saw the world happening around me. He said, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Like that's, that's like some big Ecclesiastes language as we've been going through it. But, it. but here's what he says. He says, nevertheless, so here's where Asaph, Psalm 73, picks back up the hope. He says, nevertheless, I am always with you because God, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Right? It's not like, a, like the preacher gives us in Ecclesiastes where, hey, you die and you go to the grave and that's all you get. Right? Asaph gives us that hope of that perspective of, of after I die, you're going to receive me into your glory. Because he says, who, who do I have in heaven but you, God? Right? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, that perspective, that's where you pick up your hope, is when you come to God and you get honest in front of him and you say, hey God, the reality is like I'm ready to sin. Like I'm ready to set my faith aside because it seems like the people who don't have faith in you are the people that are winning. And it seems like people that are chasing the idols they've put in their hearts and minds are the people that are getting what they want and I'm ready. He says, but then I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned reality. I change that perspective, right? Like, like if you feel like nothing you do matters, God is holding your right hand. That's the truth. That's the reality. If you've placed your faith in, in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, God sees you. He sees you. If you feel like you don't know what choice to make, like, like you, you have, like, man, is God even hearing me? Is he hearing my cries? It says that, he, that God wants to guide you with his counsel. If you're wondering, like, man, is the hope after death worth it? Like, like, is that all we have to live for? Like, does anything on this life even matter? Let me just say, what we do on earth, the time we spend with God, we're building a foundation of heavenly perspective. We're building a foundation of being in God's presence and experience his, his glory here on earth as we hear his voice and we obey him. See, I love it says that, that, that he is my portion, I love that. That word portion, it, it, what he's basically saying is the, the worth of the measure of my life is God. Man, talk about a, talk about a different, like, game-changing perspective, right? It's like Paul said. He said, hey, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Could you imagine how frustrating of a prisoner Paul was for the Romans? You know? Like, Paul's in jail for, 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 for living a life that God's called him to and pursuing righteousness and holiness and, and, and sharing the, the good news of Jesus to other people, they put him in jail and they're like, all right, Paul, uh, we're just gonna let you stay in here and rot forever. I was like, great. I'll just keep writing letters. <laughs> I'll keep singing hymns to your prison guards and they're gonna meet Jesus too. Great. And they're like, all right, well, then we're gonna kill you. He's like, even better. Bring it on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, talk about a perspective change. Like, a guy who didn't put his hope down. Like, look at Paul, man. He gets to the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy. He's, hey, I fought the good fight, and, I, and I've ran the race that was set before me. I did it. 
But you know what he says? He never says, and it wasn't worth it. He's like, man, I got shipwrecked, I got beaten, I got stoned. Like the people that, that, that like funded me to go through college and get that, that seminary education with the Pharisees, they were those same people who dragged me out in the streets and, hit, and threw stones at me trying to kill me. He says, but you know what? I don't compare the present sufferings to the glory that's gonna be revealed to me one day with God. See, that, that's, that, that's that perspective change. He was writing to Timothy and he said, and he said godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, so you, so you wanna hear like a great like Ecclesiastes language, but with that kind of God word like perspective change on it? He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, that will be content. And the godliness he's talking about, he said that it comes from uh, the pairing of the words and teaching with Jesus at the beginning of that same chapter, First uh, Timothy chapter uh, 3. He said that, that, that basically when we take the, the pursuit of a godly life, okay, so what we're doing on earth to, to become more like Jesus, as, as we're praying, as we're serving people, as we're learning to forgive people better, as we're seeking to love people the way Christ loved them, we're, we're spending time with God in prayer, we're doing our part, that godliness, when it's paired with obeying the words of Jesus, that's when that contentment comes. That's when that godly perspective happens. Because listen, as long as we have food and clothes, that's enough. I'm good. I'm good. Like, do you want to know how to just like crush the idols in your heart that's taken root and has control over you? You just get alone with God. Just seek God. Like, I know it sounds like, like too simple, but James said, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Our hope is so much greater than, than any of the joy we could experience on earth now. Right? And it's because we are people of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they've been made new. And just think about perspective, that perspective, like, like, there's no room for you to feel condemned in Jesus because you've been made new. Like, like, of course there's no condemnation. Like, whether you feel like it or not, or whether you feel like you deserve it or not, when we look at the life of Jesus and we look at his death that paid the penalty for our sins, and then his resurrection that finally, fully, and forever conquered the outcome of our sin, which is death, then he makes us new now so that we can experience life with him on earth and then forever with him after this life on earth. Like that's a perspective that makes us a whole new, brand new creature. So if you're wondering like, man, I just don't know if this life's worth it. Just know it was worth it for Jesus to come and do what he did. Like it was worth it for him to plan to return one day and finally fully make all things new. So if you need like, Matt, I, I need like, a, like some homework like a little helpful takeaway this week so I can help change this perspective so that I don't lose hope of my life with God. Here's what I want you to do. Read Colossians a few times this week. Just read through Colossians. It's like four chapters, four or five chapters. I can't remember off the top of my head. Just read through Colossians a few times, right? And, and whenever you experience, like, you, like if Paul writes something and you're like, man, that makes sense theologically, but it doesn't line up with what I'm experiencing living this life, Write that down and ask God to fill in that gap. Like, see if God will fill in that gap for you because God wants you to be with him. God wants you to do that. So when we lose our perspective, we misplace our hope. That godly perspective helps us find it again. But not just that. Here, here's what also uh, 
happens is that when our perspective is off, we tighten our grip. Look, look at verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, when our perspective is off, we, we tighten our grip because um, we can't control our circumstances. Like life, no matter how hard we try, is still very unpredictable. And that bothers us, doesn't it? Like, doesn't that hurt your feelings? Right? In 1963, Robert McNamara, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, said, The war in Vietnam is going well and we will succeed. In 1963, that's what he said. But we now know, right, 60 years later, how that ended. Right? We, we know that six years after he made that statement, about, about half a million U.S. military personnel stationed in Vietnam, and we know that by 10 years after he said that, millions of lives were lost, and the U.S. pulled combat units out after too many resources were being used and depleted. Now, it's, it's still a debate on who won the war in Vietnam, but it doesn't matter the reality is, is that no matter what his confidence was in 1963, it wasn't as predictable as he thought. Right? Like predictability is, is what we, a lot of us, work really hard for. Yeah? Like, like, like what do we like to happen whenever we flip a light switch? For lights to come on, right? What do we like to happen when we walk to our car and crank it? For it to start, Right? Right? What, what do we like to happen when we set an alarm? What do we want that alarm to do the next morning? To wake us up, right? We like predictability. Anybody really enjoy routine? Anybody routine people? Yeah, yeah. yeah Amy, you very reluctantly put your hand up. I work with you. You like routine. <laughs> right? But like what happens? Like, but what happens when we do the best we can preparing and it still doesn't work out? How do we react and respond? Right? Like, look at what he's saying, right? Like, 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 is there anyone more prepared for something than an Olympic athlete? But only one gets a gold medal. Right? Like, they all show up ready to give the absolute best they've ever done in their entire lives they're all predicted in their minds. They show up because they're predicting themselves to win. But what happens? It's not guaranteed. They're not going to win, right? Right? Um, a few years ago, I started, uh, I got into running, started trail running, and, and was really enjoying it. Signed up for a 10K race, and, and I was ready. I'd, I'd run, like I had the course map, so I knew the elevation changes. I had mapped out, like, when, you know, when to kind of hold back, when to push, so that I could, because I was, it was, I'd uh, moved, Anna and I had moved away from our hometown to Atlanta for a few years. We'd moved back to Asheville. And so it was the first time I was going to be like competing against a lot of my friends who had signed up for the race since high school. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to show up and I'm a very competitive person. Okay. So I was like, I'm going to show up and I, I don't have to be the, 
I don't have to win the whole thing. I'm just going to be all of my friends, okay? So, um, so I was ready. Like, like I did everything I could to predict how the race was going to go um, uh, and, and woke up that morning. Woke up and was like, man, my stomach doesn't feel very good. Um, I got to the race, and as soon as I stepped out of the car, I stepped into a big mud puddle, and my, my running shoes got soaking wet. And I thought, no problem, we're like running through a river at some point, so my feet are going to get wet anyways. Uh, I get to the starting line, and they're doing like the pre-race announcements, and they announce that the, the course, they changed the course because there was some rain, and, and part of the trail had washed out. So at that point, I'm like freaking out, you know. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, so running, trail race, get to the top of the first hill, run into a, a yellow jacket's nest, get stung about seven or eight times, which made my upset stomach accelerate. And uh, everything I did to prepare for six months leading up to this race, I still couldn't predict all of those things, right? And I paid money to do it. <laughs> I did get a T-shirt. I did get the T-shirt. But see, like, we do buy into the lie that if we just prepare hard enough that we can control the outcome of life, don't we? Like, like we're really good at that, right? Like, like we think if we can just like force our kids into a mold that they'll grow up and turn out a certain way, right? Like, like, like we think that if we work hard enough in our career, we'll be able to, to secure that retirement fund or that we'll be able to like, like, like we're a shoe in for that next promotion. Like we think that if we do blank hard enough, we will get blank outcome over and over. But it's just not the way it works. Last week we talked about the, the idol of power in our lives. And this week there's like a different, we're not really, there's, there's this different kind of outcome of idolatry that happens and it's called control. See, control is, it's one of the most seductive voices to us because of the heart of control is idolatry. Because if we think if I can control everything, then I will be able to appease this thing that's going to give me what I want in life. It gives us a false sense of control, right? Like, like idols lie to us and tell us that, that they will give us the things we want the most, right? We want safety. We want security. We want to be loved and liked by the people around us. Throughout the Bible, uh, it's interesting, there are three basic metaphors that, that used whenever it talks about idols. Love, obedience, and trust. Those are the three things, like metaphors used for us as humans to relate to the idols in our lives. That we love the idols, that we obey the idols in our lives, and that we trust them. Those are the, really the three things reserved for humans and how we relate to God. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. And it can be family or children. It can be career or money making. It can be achievement and acclaim. But an idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning and I know I'll have value and then I'll feel significant and secure. And if we think, the idol tells us, if you can just control the people around you enough, if you can just control your circumstances, if you can just control blank, then you're gonna get the outcome you want. But, but like, what happens when we just grow tired of not getting the dream job, when we've put in resumes and applications over and over and we just keep getting rejected, right? 
What, what happens whenever the mask that we put over being a workaholic with, with just saying we want to provide or, or work hard, like, comes off? Or what happens with the idol of having a life of ease is masked by the thing of wanting a passive income or I've earned this or retirement, right? Because the perspective that the preacher gives us is, hey, like you can't control anything in life, so either give up or tighten your grip. But the, the other perspective on the other end is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, where he says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Anxious is energy you spend to control things. Okay, either by lashing out at other people or shutting down and playing the victim or anxiously going around and, and, and controlling everything you can. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Like look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't sow or reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. Why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. I'm gonna skip down to verse 31. In the, the, uh, verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For, for people who don't know God seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day in its own trouble. All right, so that, that frenetic energy that you're using to control things so that you can get what you want, that anxiety, that, that anxious energy and presence that you have, if, you, if the perspective has changed, you say, no, there's a heavenly father who values my life that values my, the outcome of my life, values the value of my life, and, and then, then anxiety starts to slip away. And it's interesting that this passion, uh, passage about anxiety comes right after Jesus talks about and confronts the idol that leads to a lot of control and frenetic energy in our life, right? Verse 24, right before he started that spiel, he said, hey, no one can serve two masters, for you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It can't be done. Jesus is confronting idols here. And we, we learn to let go of control when we learn to destroy the idols in our hearts. See, see when we put God on the right spot in the org chart of, our, of ourselves, then that's when that turns around. See, only a life that rests in God is a life that can give up control. So back to Ecclesiastes 9, the, the last thing that we look at whenever, whenever our perspective is off. Look at verses 13 through 18. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Finally, all right, this is the first optimism in Ecclesiastes so far. I read it this week, and I was like, oh, finally, something seems good to him. Verse 14, there was a little city with a few people in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So the little parable that he teaches us here is, is something really important. Uh, because, we, you know, it's easy to look at this and think that, that this pertains to, like, some kind of out, outward, systematic organization thing, whether it's a country or something, lead wisely. But if we look at the context of it, it it's actually an individual application here. Right? The application for us is, it's good to be wise, so don't ruin it. Like, don't ruin it. God's given what you, what you need to live a wise life. Don't ruin it. And what ruins it? Like, I do. Like, what ruins my chance at making a wise choice in my life? I ruin it. I remember my mom growing up. I hate it, but I use it all the time now as a parent. She says, hey, Matt, you can't control what other people do. You can only control what you do. And it's like, man, right? My grandma would say, if I say, man, something makes me so angry. My grandma would say, well, you got the same pants to get glad in. <laughs> all right? That one will hit you at lunch. All right? But see, the thing is, when you're thinking about the, the wise person, the, the, the city that's under siege and stuff like that, that's not like some kind of outward thing that we look to, to lead and control wisely. That, that's a parable of our own lives. It's a parable of yourself. Right? Like, like here we are as people, as human beings, that, that Jesus said, hey, if any of you hear my words and obey them, you're like a wise person that builds your house on a rock. Right? When the waves and seas come up against it, this is Ecclesiastes' parable of that, of hey, whenever, whenever your life's under siege and there are people that are mightier and stronger than you are that come and they're trying to take over, right? live wisely. Take the wisdom that's been given to you and live that way. Right? I mean, I mean, and that's why it says, like, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The Hebrew could be translated a little different way. This is one of those verses that's kind of tricky and coming from an ancient language. It, could, it says, uh, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but you, sinner, destroy much good. Right? So, so what, what he's basically saying here is, is the same way that, that John writes his letter, 1 John, and he talks about, hey, I wrote this letter to you so that you will not sin. And he talks about sin, how it leads to a life apart from God. It leads, he, said, he even says, like, hey, there are some sins that lead to death. And he talks about it. And then how does he end? Anybody know how he ends his letter in 1 John? He says, keep yourself from idols. That's the last little quip there. I know we're hitting on idols a lot, but, but, but that's what Ecclesiastes is fighting a lot in its wisdom. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he argues that all sin stems from idolatry. Right, The idolatry, the sin that we allow to creep into our life, it's the, the mighty king who comes to knock down what we've built on the wisdom of a life with God. It tries to make us think that a life living for God and devoted to holiness isn't worth it. It tries to make us think that the worldviews, the philosophies, that the things that, that we pick up on the way we think about life by, by doom scrolling late into the night is better and more helpful than a life with God he gives us in his word, right? It's where, it's where our idols control us and they tear down a life built on the word of God. And so let me just ask you, with those three things, is, is, as, as we look at Ecclesiastes, like have you set down your hope and do you need to pick it back up? The hope found in a life with God, right? Is, is there things of areas in life you're controlling and you're tightening your grip 
that you need to let go of so that God can rule in your life? Right? Are, are there things that you're letting come into your life, sin, that are taking root, to, that's trying to tear down a life built with Jesus? Right? What are those things that you're unwilling to let control of? And so here's just a few action steps as we close today. The one thing, the first thing may be, this is an opportunity to start a life following Jesus. That you look at the things in the world that are trying to control you, that sin, that hurt, that shame, that Jesus came from heaven to live a sinless life that we could never live to fulfill the requirements of the law. And then he died on the cross to pave the penalty for that sin. The, the, the spotless, sinless one died in our place, but then he rose from the grave to conquer death and make it possible for us to live a life with him, a new life, to live in his presence the way we were made to live, what we were created for. And if you believe that and you want to start that life with Jesus, maybe for the first time, you just tell him. You just say, Jesus, I believe that and I need you to save me from these things. I need you to save me from my sin. You can say that. Maybe there's an area of your life that we've been talking about that I hit on today that, that you've realized you've got such a tight, white-knuckle grip on it that you're choking out the life in that area. You're, and, and you need to hand it to Jesus. You can do that simply. You say, Jesus, I'm sorry for thinking I'm you. God, I'm sorry for thinking I'm you in this area of life. I need you to come be you so that I can learn to live with you. Maybe you need to do that. So as I close today, if there's something that came to your mind that you need to give to Jesus, I'm gonna give us 30 seconds of silence so that just in your heart or maybe out loud you can do that. We'll have uh, some of our prayer team in the back that if, as we worship, as we stand and worship in a minute, you can go back and talk to them. But whatever, as we respond, just take 30 seconds. I'm just gonna ask you where you are just to, just to talk to God. If today's the day that you need to place your faith in Jesus and ask him to save you from those things, do it. If there's that area of life that you need to let control of, ask God to take control and let him be him. And then I'll close this in prayer and then we'll stand up and worship. Let's take about 30 seconds to respond to God. Father, thank you that, that you are God because you are kind and compassionate. You're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God, you did not let sin go unpunished, but you actually paid the price for our sin by sending your son, Jesus. So Jesus, as we look to you today and we seek to change our perspective, to let go of control, to refine that hope, and to not let sin come and, 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 and destroy the, the work of holiness and godliness and contentment in you that Paul talked about. Jesus, meet us in those places. If there's, those, if there's anyone in the room today who, who is seeking you and has heard the good news that you came and paid the price for our sin, that you died a death on the cross and that you rose from the grave and they are seeking you to save them, Father, thank you for that. God, give them courage to respond to you, and for those of us who know you, but we've let idols creep back into our heart and take the place 
of you. Maybe, maybe that idol has made us think that we can be God in our lives. Father, forgive us and meet us in those places. Fill in that gap where we know the life that we want with you, but we don't have it. So Father, as we draw near to you, draw near to us. And as we stand and respond in your name, Holy Spirit, be with us. And Jesus, give us a fresh taste of grace. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.